Thanks for listening once again to our Free Speech and Medicine podcast. You can follow us at parodox.substack.com, and that's P-A-I-R-O-D-O-C-S, parodox.substack.com, or on Twitter at The Paradox. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to The Paradox podcast on your favorite podcatcher. In this, as with all our other podcasts, many of the things that I referred to are linked on our Substack show notes. The idea of God-given freedoms is at the basis of classical liberalism. These are often referred to as negative rights. I touched on this briefly in a previous Substack. Negative rights can be thought of as freedom from something. The right to be left alone, freedom from violence. The right to say what you want, freedom from censorship. The right to not have your things stolen, freedom from theft. Basically, the right not to be interfered with. These require nothing from anyone else other than that they leave you the heck alone. On the other side of the rights divide is positive rights. And I use scare quotes around rights here to suggest that these are not clearly rights, but actually something I would call privileges. These are things like the right to health care, the right to clean water, the right to welfare. If these are indeed rights, then it is mandatory that someone else provide you these things if you don't have them. During this podcast, the next in our 2023 Free Speech and Medicine Speaker Series, James Manson, a lawyer who is working with Charter Advocates Canada to preserve civil rights, dives into this very complex and thorny issue with me. What does the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms say about positive rights? Where does the idea and the institutional support for positive rights come from? In a society where we cannot avoid interaction, rights often conflict. I want to say what I think, but if you have the right not to be offended, then my freedom of speech is impacted. If you have the right to do drugs and set up a tent in the park, my freedom to use the park is impacted. You want the right to play ACDC at 120 decibels at 4 a.m., but I want the right to peacefully enjoy my property. I want my handicapped child in a regular classroom, but that child will require a disproportionate percentage of the teacher's time and decrease the amount of time the teacher spends with the other kids. Whose rights should prevail in these battles? Human rights commissions, which fall into an odd gray zone outside the rules of the regular court system with its normal checks and balances, have thrown a wrench into the gears of normal societal functioning in Canada. You would be hard-pressed to find a person in Canada today who would want to say that unfair discrimination is wrong. But HRCs have been given the power to decide how discrimination, or being treated fairly, are defined. Is it discrimination to fire a male teacher who likes wearing Z-cup prosthetic breasts to work? Is it discrimination to fire an alcoholic truck driver who crashes your truck? Is it discrimination for a comedian to make a joke about a handicapped person? or for a bar owner to remove a person without proper ID from his bar. In Canada, it now is, according to human rights commissions. When does being reasonably discriminating become unfair discrimination? In Canada, the answer is when the HRC commissioner tells you it is. As James mentions in the podcast, the provincial HRCs are adjudicated by appointed, not elected or accountable, commissioners and generate regulations such as the Ontario HRC's 38-page legalese policy document on gender discrimination. That's just one of many documents full of things that employers and others should do. Although not laws per se, an individual or business can be brought in front of a tribunal, a process that costs the defendants, uh, lawyers, and time, but is free for the complainant. 
and if found guilty of the code that the HRC has determined, a defendant can then be fined. And to put it mildly, as James mentions, HRC functionaries are not chosen from the center or right of the political spectrum. And if HRCs were not enough to tilt the scale of positive versus negative rights, professional regulators, unions, the civil service, universities, health authorities, and other government-funded, empowered, and regulated bodies all now undermine basic freedoms in their own ways. Want to get into medical school? First, tell us how you plan to be anti-racist. You want to work in the civil service? Don't argue with the diversity trainer. If you want to be in certain jobs, you have to agree to abandon your right to express your disagreement with approved political views. This is a complex and thorny subject. What is the correct balance of positive rights versus negative rights? Whichever direction we head in, there is no utopia at the end of the road. But at this point in history, it's clear to me that the scale is wildly tilting away from basic civil liberties. Libertarianism may not be a destination that we all agree upon, but I would argue that at this point it is the right direction in which to point the nose of our cultural boat. We look forward to hearing James flesh this out more at Free Speech and Medicine 2023, and I thank him very much for spending this time with me. Hello, Paradox Free Speech and Medicine podcast listeners. Thanks very much for tuning in again today. This is the next in the series of speaker introduction podcasts for the 2023 Free Speech and Medicine Conference in Bedeck, Nova Scotia. It's happening in a short few weeks. Um, if you go to freespeechandmedicine.com, there are still spots available to register. You get to come and hear all these amazing speakers in person, as well as hang around with a great group of attendees for a weekend in a beautiful setting. So I hope that you consider coming. So tonight, my guest is James Manson. James is a lawyer who's done work for a number of organizations. I'll let him tell us a bit about that. But James, James's focus is on uh, various types of fundamental rights for, for us here in Canada. And he's worked on some very important cases. So uh, with that, James, I'll ask you, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, where do you work, and what's your path that led you into your current occupation? Thanks, Chris, and thanks again for having me. Really, really pleased to be here and to uh, to be part of the conference coming up at the end of the month. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to come out to the island and uh, and talk with the, uh, with the conference attendees. So um, a bit about me. Um, I'm uh, a lawyer with about 15 or so years of experience now. Most of my experience was in the uh, commercial litigation field. So I've, I've always been an advocate. I've always been a litigator, but never, uh, not always with respect to the constitutional uh, law or civil rights law, public interest law. Uh, that's been more of a recent development for me. Um, basically, my path to my current situation started during the, the the COVID situation a few years ago um, without going into the whole story. Uh, basically, I was fairly concerned about where our country uh, uh, was at the time, where it's currently headed. And uh, my platform at the time was more geared towards you know, standard commercial things, uh, fighting about money or insurance uh, policies or what have you. And there really wasn't much space for me to get involved in the constitutional 
arguments that were being made a couple of years ago and you know now going forward so i kind of i kind of had a a little bit of an epiphany i guess and i i just decided that that i i needed to do a little bit more uh to 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 argue for the principles that i believe in and and that is certainly the charter of rights uh a robust interpretation of the charter of rights and um and that's what led me to my current situation so through various people i i was connected to various other people and and i find myself now uh in an organization that that is um uh geared totally towards taking on cases for uh for people who who have had you know constitutional issues who have had charter of rights violations and uh and and to advance their interests you know pro bono which is great so very happy to do that so that's basically where i where where i came from i'm born and raised in winnipeg manitoba actually i now find myself in toronto been here about 10 or 12 years uh and um and i expect i'll be here for the balance of my career so that's that's a bit about me great awesome so you know we we've been um, batting back and forth by email and by phone about exactly the nature of your talk of free speech or medicine there's you know, a lot of different things you could talk about, but um, I think we've kind of landed on the idea of positive versus negative rights in society. Like what, what is a positive right? What is a negative right? How are those two balanced and how's that balance changed in, especially in Canada with the trends that we've seen? So maybe I could start off by asking you, can you explain to the listeners, what is a positive right versus a negative right? Right. So it's interesting, right? Isn't it, Chris? The first thing you think about when you think about rights is is usually freedom of expression, my right to my right to say what I want, um, my right for the government not to, you know, come and arrest me and 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 pull me out of my home in the middle of the night without any reason, uh, you know, all of those types of things. And usually, what we what we consider a right to be, I would think, you know, just just off the top of our heads is the right to be free from something. So the right for the government not to the right rather for the government not to not to interfere with our lives, shall we say. And interestingly though, in in recent years, in recent decades, I suppose, that has been changing. There has been a different concept of what is a right it's no longer what we call a negative right so a right to be free from something a right you know for the government not to not to tell us what we can and can't say or what medical treatments that we have to take or can't take or whatever all of those things are negative rights the rights that we consider to be in the charter of rights are generally speaking negative rights um and that's embodied generally in section two of the of the Charter of Rights, for example, where we have freedom of expression, freedom of religion. That means basically that the government cannot interfere with our our rights to religion or expression or what have you, uh, absent a, a a good reason, shall we say? So that's that's what a negative right generally is. Well, now there's this thing called a positive right. Well, what is that? Well, basically, a positive right is a concept where somebody says you owe me something. I have the right to something. You must do something to 
to me or for me, you must give me something in order for me to, you know, be a happy person or a fulfilled person or a safe person or, or whatever. And that could mean, for example, the right to healthcare. You owe me the right. I, I have a right to be healthy and you owe me the right to, to provide me with health care or perhaps social uh, assistance, welfare benefits. You owe me that right or employment insurance benefits. You owe me that right. I would postulate, I'm not a social scientist here, Chris, but I would postulate that this, this concept of rights, what they call positive rights, probably comes from the rise of the welfare state. You know, I mean, I mean, back in the turn of the century, uh, you know, because of the Industrial Revolution and all the horrible things that were going on back then to people, to humans, certain ideas came into being that, hey, we, we, we ought to have these minimum standards of living, these minimum standards of fulfillment and things like that. Um, I can I can appreciate how that is important. Right. It's important for us to have things. I think it's important in our society to have social assistance benefits and employment insurance benefits and, you know, free health care. I, I think that's important. I don't consider these things to be rights in the sense that other people might. Uh, I think that they're very legitimate policy goals. They're very le they're, they're legitimate areas of legislation for governments and legislatures, but I don't consider them to be constitutional rights. And that's where the tension is, because of course, when you're talking about a positive right to something, be it healthcare or be it social insurance or whatever, you are in effect requiring somebody else to do something, which then of course impedes or steps on or sort of overlaps or is in conflict with their own right not to do something or their own right to be free from something. And so that is where we are right now. We are in a state right now where we're in a very high state of tension, I would say, with respect to what rights are more important, shall we say, what rights are enforceable, what rights uh, are covered by our constitution, by our charter of rights. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting time for lawyers and for social scientists and for legal philosophers. Um, I, can, I, can, I can tell you that the charter of rights certainly uh, protects and enforces negative rights. Not sure it does with 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 positive rights, though. Okay, so the so the charter, um, so a positive right. Just to I'm going to recap that for the audience. But a, a, a negative right are, are what we think of as our basic rights: freedom of speech, freedom of religion, um, right to not have our property stolen. Basically, the rights to be left alone, freedom from. The positive rights are, are these ideas like you have a right to clean water, a right to health care, a right to shelter. And these these are uh, the, the right to have something often provided by somebody else. So it basically it requires something from somebody else besides just them leaving you alone. Um, so you're saying these are not enshrined in any way in the charter, but it does seem like the, these type of positive rights, um, I, you know, for instance, uh, here in Nova Scotia, a group of people successfully fought for the right to for for breast um, either you know e breast 
removal or breast augmentation for gender non-binary people. And they they successfully won, and that was determined to be a right, that they had a right to that health care. Um, so how how do you feel that Canada has slid into this territory where we're now thinking of, you know, the right to have breast surgery as, sorry, we're thinking of, you know, the access to breast surgery as a right rather than a privilege? So... I think the answer is going to be a bit of a lengthy one. I'll try to keep it brief. I know we don't have time right now for an entire exposition here, but but first of all, we go to the Charter, all right? I mean, that's going to be the source of our constitutional rights. It is, in fact, the Constitution itself. So, so what we see when we look at Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence, and what by that, what I mean is the the precedent cases, right, over the years since the Charter has come into force, the Supreme Court is called upon to, you know, interpret these sections of the Charter, whatever the rights may be that are under under uh, investigation at the time in the case. And they, you know, issue these, these decisions, these precedents that have binding force of law across the country, right? So, so, so you know, from, from time to time, you'll, you'll have plaintiffs or people coming before the court, and they will they will try to suggest that there should be some positive right that, that that they ought to have. And that could be in the context of really any of the rights that the Charter contains. So it could be freedom of expression. It could be the rights under Section 7 of the Charter to uh, life, liberty, and security of the person. It could be the Section 15 rights to equality and freedom of uh, freedom from discrimination. So in the context of all of those rights, you're going to get somebody that comes before the court and says, hey, you know, something happened to me. I need a positive right. I need the government to do something for me in order so that I can, you know, be a better person or whatever it may be. And generally speaking, uh, Chris, I can tell you that the courts, the Supreme Court is not really willing to enforce a positive right or recognize a positive right. It does happen sometimes, but it doesn't happen very often. I can tell you for sure that in 2005, for example, there was a case called Chowley. And Chowley was a, was a case out of Quebec. And that case was all about a, a doctor and a patient. They wanted basically to circumvent the public uh, universal healthcare system in Quebec. They wanted a private system, basically. And their argument basically was that the the public healthcare system in Quebec was 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 not adequate. The waiting times were too long, and the guy was being denied his his rights because of um, of whatever reason. And and the the result of that case isn't really important. What's important for our purposes is the statement that the court made, one of the opinions of one of the justices, and she said the charter does not confer a freestanding constitutional right to health care. Very, very clear that there is no such thing as a freedom of, of a constitutional right, shall we say, to free health care in Canada. What the court did say was when, when the government does provide free health care, when it does provide a system for free health care, then it has to administer that system uh, in accordance with the charter, which is a different idea than having one at all. So if 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 the federal government were to repeal the Canada Health Act and there was no more universal health care, 
arguably there would not be a constitutional argument against that. So interestingly, though, Chris, you may be aware of the Canby Surgeries case recently out of uh, British Columbia. Similar arguments were made to the Chowley case out of BC, and a couple of doctors there wanted to have a private private uh, uh, surgery as well. That didn't fly. It was very interesting. In the Chowley case, the court, the Supreme Court said that, in fact, the, the system in Quebec was unconstitutional and that Mr. Chowley was able to, to get his private uh, health care going. In BC, it was the opposite, and the, and the Supreme Court actually never agreed to hear the case. That just came out a few months ago, their, their re- refusal to even hear the case. It's very interesting from a constitutional perspective that way. But anyway, I digress. There's also a case uh, a couple of years before Chowley, Chris, called Gosselin. And the Gosselin case was all about somebody who, uh, again, out of Quebec, she wasn't able to access certain social assistance benefits. She was only allowed to get a couple hundred bucks a month, basically, because she was an unemployed person. She tried to hold down a job. She couldn't hold down a job. She was pretty down on her luck. And what happened was, uh, the social insurance regime at the time gave people a couple hundred bucks a month, like her, and they gave you more if you were able to go and 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 train for work or go back to school or do some things to do that. She wasn't able to do those things, and so she 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 applied to the court for a ruling that that regime was unconstitutional, that she was basically entitled to more money, that the government had to give her more money because they gave other people more money, they should give her more money too. And again, the Supreme Court said that on those facts, there wasn't such a right under section seven or 15 of the charter. So again, the court was not willing to extend a positive right in that case. So again, there was another case out of Ontario a few years ago, about 10 years ago, couple of uh, people they were they were homeless at the time they were down on their luck and they were trying to establish before the court that the government of Canada and the government of Ontario had uh, not given sufficient attention to homelessness and adequate housing adequate shelter things like that and that there was an obligation to do so and the court said no that's not the case uh, there is no such thing as a right to adequate shelter, adequate housing, things like that. So again, what we're seeing is, generally speaking, you don't turn to the charter for the establishment of a of a positive right. There are ways to do it. I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, totally get lost in the weeds here, but uh, generally speaking, you don't. So, so what is what is driving the bus? Then is the next question on yeah, the list. So perfect. Yeah. So exactly. So if it's not coming through the charter rights and it's not coming through the Supreme Court, then how are positive rights leaking into society as something that we see as equivalent to negative rights? How is how has this happened? Yeah. Right. So you know, it's it seems to be. It seems to be, in my view, coming through a few different ways. One would be through what we have uh, in each province, uh, and that's the the human rights legislation in each province. So the listeners may be aware that um, in addition to the charter, we have human rights codes or human rights acts across the provinces and and uh, the territories and basically that 
is in some ways, actually, another expression of negative rights, right? Basically, what the sections say is uh, everybody has the right to be free from discrimination based on whatever grounds. So race, age, sex, sexual orientation, place of origin, creed, all of these different types of uh, discrimination, right? And so naturally, Chris, one, one, uh, one would never disagree that, that it's good to have anti-discrimination laws in our, in our country. Uh, we want to, to eliminate discrimination. That's important. The problem, of course, is, is what happens then in the nuts and bolts of these cases that are, that are happening. So, so what I mean to say is, it seems to me that, that, that these types of human rights code legislations and provisions in these, in these, in these pieces of legislation are somehow being manipulated or used uh, for different reasons maybe than than the reasons for which they were enacted. So, I mean, 30 years ago, right, if you're a business owner in Nova Scotia or, say, Toronto, you weren't subjected, shall we say, to the very, very, very um, intricate and and very, very voluminous types of admonishments and suggestions and 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 all kinds of things that the businesses are now so for example what what i can see here chris i've i've got a policy on my desk right now from the human rights commission in ontario so just so the listeners are aware here the ontario human rights commission is a body that is established by the human rights code in our in our province and it is essentially an advisory body there is something else called the Human Rights Tribunal, and that's the one that actually hears cases and decides whether people have been discriminated against under the code. But there's this thing called a commission that sits beside it. And basically, these people who are appointed as commissioners, they are, well, they're not elected, they are appointed, and they then have some degree of uh, authority in terms of the policies that are promulgated by the commission. So the commission will, you know, kind of operate as a bit of a think tank and they will it will produce policies. These policies don't really have the force of law, but nonetheless, they are very persuasive in terms of when the tribunal will consider a, a, a case. Uh, one of the parties might refer to the policies of the commission. In that case, the tribunal is obligated to consider the policy. And in cases where the commission doesn't believe that the tribunal interpreted or, or gave sufficient consideration to the policy, it can actually get involved as a non-party. It can get involved and, and file a case before the courts, which is an interesting, an interesting mechanism, which we don't need to dwell on, basically. But the point is simply that these, these, um, these policies are very very heavy and and i i can tell you right now chris i'm looking at the policy that was that was that was um, produced for the ground of gender discrimination or gender identity gender expression J just as a random one they have policies for all of the grounds of discrimination but this one is 38 pages long and and it's 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 double it's single spaced 
it's got all kinds of, of ideas and all kinds of information and all kinds of suggestions and shoulds about what a business or what a landlord has to do or not do in order to um, not run afoul of this discrimination. So, so what it seems to me, Chris, is that a lot of these groups, a lot of these actors, which, which we've seen, you know, come up in the last, say, 30, 40 years, right? And again, I'm not a social scientist, but, you know, I think it's pretty clear to, to identify that we've had a lot of fragmentation in our society over the last 30, 40 years, the different social theories from feminism to, you know, queer theory to gender, all, all of that stuff, all, all the way down uh, to where we are now, you've got a lot of fragmentation happening. And this idea of intersectionality, which means that you've got further fragmentation. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, you've got a whole bunch of actors, groups, which are, you know, going to be jockeying for power, for more benefits, for more influence, and for more advantage among themselves. Uh, I'm not passing judgment on any of that, of course. That is simply the reality. And and uh, you've got um, these very, very vast and very, very nebulous policies, which are 38 pages long, and and people are able to leverage those things in order to get what they want. And I will also say, Chris, just by the by, um, you've got in, in Ontario, at least, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to be the same everywhere else. You've got these again, these unelected people who are going to be steering the, these human rights commissions in a certain way. So you've got I, I have one here. Um, on 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 the, the the web page of the Ontario Human Rights Commissioner, and this person's this is a commissioner of the Human Rights Commission. So this person's <laughs> website is right here, and this person says, "quote If I say there is a human right to have our basic needs met, for example, it actually means that someone has a duty to do something about it, so I can have my right fulfilled." Now, that's a quote from this person, this commissioner. So that is the philosophy that this person, I would assume, espouses. And this is the reality that this person's trying to bring about, which is basically the establishment of positive rights. Yes, that sounds very akin to from each according to his ability to each according to his need. You know, it sounds very much like that. You are obligated as a citizen of Canada to provide things for other people if somebody on the commission determines that that is necessary it just right. it's really really uh, speaks of a, a deep marxist belief or at least socialist and then perhaps marxist I, it just feels that way yeah yeah you know it's 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 certainly not something that i again it's certainly not something that i can see the courts really at least so far they've they haven't entertained this I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, right? I mean, number one, the idea of consensus. What rights are supposed to be enforced or enforceable under the Constitution and what and, and which ones are not? We don't have consensus on that across across the various provinces or across the various courts or, or various judges. You know, also, there's the issue of, of legitimacy in the courts, right? I mean, courts aren't political actors. They're not supposed to be anyway. 
and they're not elected. They don't have any idea how to allocate resources. They're not, they have no idea. They're not situated to know what right or what policy area should get more funding or less funding. And so there's, there's, there's definitely good reasons why courts don't get involved. But again, these people aren't courts. They are, they are other entities and they have some authority by virtue of their offices perhaps uh, uh, by virtue of their educations, where they, you know, what their pedigrees are, things like that. So it's a bit of a different uh, source of authority, I guess. And while we're on the subject, Chris, there's another source of authority, which would be, of course, the colleges. Uh, in, in your case, the College of Physicians. In my case, it would be the law societies. Um, you've got these colleges of, of all the professions. I mean, we know Dr. Peterson's case very well recently, talking about what Dr. Peterson is and is not allowed to say on Twitter, or what you or I would be allowed to say on those on those social media platforms either. Um, interesting there as well, because that's, again, kind of a source of authority, because the law, you know, like the legislatures have devolved the authority to the colleges to regulate ourselves. And so then these bodies say, well, here's what you can and can't do. You 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 can uh, say this, you cannot say that, you have to be professional. What does that mean? Nobody knows what being professional means. And therefore, everybody is feeling awkward and decides not to say anything because they're afraid of losing their licenses. And that's also a very difficult um, conversation. Right. And so back to your original question of 10 minutes ago, Chris, how is it possible that the that that some person in Nova Scotia was able to get um, the right, shall we say, to uh, have her 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 breasts removed as part of a gender transition? Um, well, I'm not sure it is a right, first of all. I mean, I mean, I'm not sure I would characterize it as that because because of that that quote I mentioned a few minutes ago. There isn't a freestanding right, shall we say, to healthcare. But nonetheless, it happened. I I agree, it happened. She has this privilege or this ability to 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 get this to get this done, the surgery performed. Um, I think that that's probably a multifaceted problem. You know, it's 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 on the one hand, uh, the college being populated perhaps by people who are subscribers of the current ethos. In terms of uh, of of particularly with all of the all of the the the, the gender issues, um, and um, the idea that the colleges believe that they have the untrammeled right to dictate to everybody what their or pr- doctors anyway what they are allowed to say and do and not. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not sure that that stems from the charter. Uh, I don't think it does. Something else. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. So I, I think maybe so rather than directly down the middle through legislature, through the charter, through the courts, it's coming around the edges through these quangos or or sort of government empowered organizations, teachers unions, uh, the health authorities, universities, um, you know, as you say, um, professional bodies, professional regulatory bodies, and then the Human Rights Commission. So it seems to be that these organizations, essentially, although they don't have the power of law behind them, they they have statutory powers granted to them by the government, which then they use to 
carry out what you know if you, pejoratively one could call a woke agenda but at least a you know a progressive agenda at best is that right right so so what we're maybe if we contemplated it as rather than a top-down idea of of um of, of of rights coming from the supreme court coming from parliament coming from the legislatures what we're what we're seeing is kind of a bottom-up you know idea in terms of these 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 different concepts of what rights ought to be are, are are not coming from sources of actual authority, actual legal or constitutional authority. They're coming from a different source of authority. Maybe it's moral authority or what's perceived to be moral authority um, by a certain segment of the population. And that is that hasn't yet maybe percolated up into the higher levels of court or into the higher levels of government to be dealt with and so for example you i think we're seeing that play out right now for example in the uh trans cases in new brunswick and uh saskatchewan right you've got you've got these um these uh governments finally saying wait a second what's happening with these with these uh what's happening with these um school boards and these these school policies which we never we never said it was okay for you know parents to not be informed about their children if they want to change their pronouns or they want to assume a different gender identity, that parents have to be informed. So says the government of New Brunswick and now Saskatchewan. Well, now we've got legislation, uh, pardon me, we have lawsuits that have sprung up and those are going to make their way into the courts now. Uh, In fact, I understand that in Saskatchewan, the legislature will be now invoking the notwithstanding clause to, to to guarantee that this policy shift will happen. So what that demonstrates then, Chris, is the is the resolution of this tension, right? You've got the legislature finally saying, okay, wait a second, now we're waking up to this. And what is going on here? That's not what we want as an elected body. We're going to put a stop to it and we'll use the notwithstanding clause if we want to. So, um, and that might, well, frankly, if the notwithstanding clause is used, Generally speaking, the courts can't do anything. So that, that might be the end of the discussion. But that's where the tension may be, may be, may be getting resolved finally. And just to let the listeners know, we we kind of had to pop off onto another link. So there's a bit of a break here. But um, just to to summarize what you just said, it sounds like so the these positive rights have not crept in directly through the Charter of Rights in Supreme Court. They've leaked in around the edges through all these organizations that we've talked just talked about. And now what we're seeing in New Brunswick, well, at least in Saskatchewan, where the notwithstanding clause has been invoked, is the basically the 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 charter actually being used to quash some of these positive rights that have leaked in too far, perhaps. So come full circle in a way in our conversation. It's a it's an interesting development, Chris, because I have to tell you that back when I was in law school or even before, um, when I was in my political science um, degree days, um, we would talk about the Charter of Rights and we would talk about the 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 dialogue, as they called it, between the courts, the Supreme Court and the parliament and like the legislatures. And this was back in the earlier days of the Charter of Rights when people were still kind of interpreting what sections meant what and 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 what were the parameters of each of these rights and stuff and and 
some of the um, academics would be would be talking about again a dialogue so the court would strike down a certain law because it was unconstitutional then parliament would would reenact the law with a couple of changes to it and there would be this back and forth um between two you know bodies of 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 government one elected one not but anyway uh there'd be this 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 dialogue and that was generally seen to be a pretty good thing so interestingly that dialogue seems to have kind of dissipated in 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 recent years right i mean i don't know which body of government has sort of fallen asleep at the switch but in any event you don't really get the same sense that 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 dialogue is still happening and so in the absence of that dialogue uh you've you've got you know some of these actors like i'm mentioning uh from the bottom coming up creeping up with 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 new ideas of what ought to be rights and what ought to be what ought to be uh, responsibilities of various actors but with the the with the introduction shall we say of the notwithstanding clause as a useful actual tool see that's the thing right chris the notwithstanding clause was always when i was in law school we always were told to look at it with horror right to look at it with total disappointment that how could any government ever use a notwithstanding clause to you know force rights on people or force restrictions or force some kind of a violation of somebody's right on people and that it was always such a horrible thing that it was included in the in the charter in the first place well if courts these days are no longer as ready to you know strike down laws uh, because they're unconstitutional, the Section One Oaks test, as we call it, th- that's the test by which courts will assess whether a law is limited, is reasonably justified in limiting a certain a certain right. Um, but we we've seen lately that courts are no longer really as rigorous, shall we say, in enforcing those rights or enforcing that test. I won't bore the listeners with the with a with the contours of that test but anyway my point being simply is that if the courts are no longer quite as willing to strike down laws maybe the notwithstanding clause is the ultimate guarantee of what the people in a certain province or even in parliament want and so in saskatchewan for example you've got the the legislature of saskatchewan apparently they will be enacting legislation which will solidify the this policy shift, right? So now in Saskatchewan, parents of, I think it's under 16 year old uh, 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 children, they will be informed if their children are planning to change their pronouns or their gender identities. And the Saskatchewan legislature has said in no uncertain terms now, that is what's happening. So there's the dialogue. <laughs> it's, 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 perhaps, it's perhaps dialogue that's, that's, that's quite firm, but there it is. And and maybe that is going to be what happens more often these days is that in response to these bottom up type uh, assertions of what rights ought to be and and in the absence of of a strong uh, constitutional analysis with respect to these things, maybe the legislatures will just say, you know what, we're not having this and we're not going to say that uh, that these uh, assertions of positive rights coming from elsewhere than the Supreme Court, 
are are valid either. Now, it also may be the case, Chris, mm -hmm. uh, that the Supreme Court does say as well, no, you you can't have these rights that these people are suggesting. I mean, we don't know what the actual court would say in uh, in these trans uh, you know cases in New Brunswick and 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 Saskatchewan. They haven't gone they haven't gone to a hearing yet, right? So we don't know what would happen. It's definitely possible that the courts would say, no, that's a, you're asking for a positive right. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But anyway, if the legislatures continue to use the notwithstanding clause, the courts won't won't get involved because they won't be able to. So so it's an interesting time to be a constitutional lawyer. That's for sure, Chris. It It is indeed. It's an interesting time to be a Canadian. There's a, a lot afoot in that like that. Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. It certainly feels like it's been that way for, for decades in Canada and certainly since COVID, um, it's been on steroids. So James, I really appreciate you spinning us through this. It's, it's kind of a difficult and, and deep talk topic, but the idea of a positive right versus a negative right and how do we weigh them against each other, I think it, it feeds into a lot of the... Um, uh, what would you say? A lot of the arguments in society these days, uh, I, I really do think it frames those. If we can, if we can understand these fundamentally, I, I think it helps us to think rationally and logically, and perhaps, if not to agree, at least to argue better. So I think you've helped us do that here today, and uh, I really look forward to hearing more of this uh, when you speak at Free Speech and Medicine. And so again, I'll encourage people uh, freespeechandmedicine.com consider coming out to Cape Breton. Uh, you'll hear James amongst many other great speakers. You'll have a chance to meet him in person and ask him questions in person, including maybe even over a meal or a beer in the evening. So uh, we hope you consider coming. Um, and with that, James, uh, unless there's any parting words, I'll, I'll say uh, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Chris. It's always a pleasure. And I am definitely looking forward to coming out to uh, Cape Breton end of the month and, uh, and, 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 and talking about this a bit more. So thanks again. Wonderful. Thanks so much.